0: Staring to the stars the uncanny swells what is that glooming orb what are those grainy pictures what is this funny feeling join Vikram Zuchi and Aaron Michael Allray as they discuss UFOs aliens and alien abductions in this episode of the Big Turtle podcast so yeah hi everyone uh welcome to the Big Turtle podcast or show We are streaming on YouTube in video format, and we're also available in audio on Spotify, Anchor, uh, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Um, So we've had some very colorful and eclectic guests. You know, we talk about everything from art to religion, uh, to politics, to sex, to yoga, and um, drugs and aliens and everything in between. So um, welcome to the show. Today we have um, Aaron Ulrey. He is a scholar and a teacher uh, currently based in uh, Denver, Colorado. And um, so we had him on the show um, a few weeks ago to talk about Tantra. Uh, neo-tantra and comparing neo-tantra to uh, classical Hindu tantra. Uh, Unfortunately, I wasn't on that particular episode. My co-host Leah was on there. So today I've invited Aaron back on the show to, uh, we're going to talk about an area of mutual interest, um, uh, namely the, the UFO phenomena. Um, un- unidentified flying objects as they're called in uh, popular culture. Um, and um, some historical backdrop as to how these things were interpreted, um, you know, over the years or over the centuries even, how they've uh, infiltrated uh, the popular mainstream and um, the overlap With mystical and religious um, thinking uh, in different cultures, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Tantra, Western occult, and so on. So I let um, I let um, Aaron introduce himself. Um, You know, as far as his resume goes, I'm not big on resumes, but I'm sure he can sum it up for us, and then then we we, we'll move, move on.
1: Well, hello. I am Dr. Aaron Ulrey. I got my PhD in 2016 from University of California, Santa Barbara. I do research on magic, specifically the off kind of term black magic as it's uh, applied in world cultures, but I'm very interested in aggressive magical rituals in the Hindu tantras. I'm increasingly called to conferences to speak about Jain tantra, which I've translated a couple of Jain tantras Um, But today we're going to talk about UFOs. Now, why me on this? Well, I'm not a ufologist by any means, but I am a historian of religions. And I think that there is an interesting intersection between one, looking at stuff that is unidentified in the sky that could be anything from weather balloons to hoaxes by stunt pilots to actual spaceships from other places or as the guys standing around a beer uh, burn barrel in the movie Repo Man's at Time Machines. And I think it's really interesting to think about these physical things that people have seen in the sky, but what does that have to do with a religious experience? Well, what's also really interesting are these alien encounters or alien abductions in which folks are abducted, usually from their beds late at night, and they have these sort of somewhat visionary experiences that can be interpreted in a whole bunch of exciting ways. And I would say to ignore that as merely the workings of dream, para- of sleep paralysis or dream hypnosis is to ignore what's happening right around us all the time and that we have new religious experiences. We have people describing legit visionary stuff happening. So as to whether they're contacted by demon, angels, aliens, the dead, Regardless of all that, I see these as being legitimate and ongoing religious experiences. And finally, from the Western occult world, we have some evidence that Vikram and I have been speaking about a little bit about how we find that contemporary occultists use the writings of Alistair Crowley and Kenneth Grant to do their own active meditative experiences in order to make contact with aliens that they say were possibly unleashed by Aleister Crowley in 1917. And we can get into all of that and more.
0: Excellent. So, um, you know, I, I remember reading Whitley Stryber. Um, yeah. At, I think I was uh, 18, you know, when I read that book Communion, I'd had a, huge impact on me. Uh, you know, it was just so well-written, so believable. And uh, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and the man is, you know, he, he speaks with an air of authority and credibilities. So it was something that really uh, left a lasting impact. And then I read a book by the, the Harvard um, psychiatrist John Mack, again, and he's reported on the abduction phenomena. And he comes up with these incredible, you know, about he, what, the, what these entities, uh, for lack of a better, extraterrestrial or not, what are they trying to tell us? And what are they trying to warn us about? And there's, you know, there's just unmistakable resonance with uh, various Eastern philosophies where they talk about the interconnectedness of all life and all creation, and um, and the ripple effect of karma, and all this stuff. Though he doesn't use the, this terminology, but uh, you know, it, it's it's very easy to see the parallels. Yeah. Um, what is your take on this? Because you know, um, uh, they say they they tell us that we shouldn't. Uh, we, we shouldn't frame this uh, through a cause and effect binary. So this is beyond cause and effect, you know, the, the world of temporal, temporality yeah. and causation. Um, and then we, we talk about the space-time continuum and we go into physics and we go into string theory and parallel universes and all these things, esoteric um, yeah. Sort of concepts that are now being discussed in physics, you know, with, by people at MIT and Stanford and so on. And, and, and MIT and Stanford have also in the past been involved in very, um, what should I say, outlandish experiments in, in the paranormal phenomena in aliens, UFOs, remote sensing and so on.
1: Don't forget Duke on that one. Duke was the place for that.
0: Duke was the place. Duke
1: University where they, I I mean, MIT, Stanford, but definitely Duke had the Paranormal Research Institute. But yeah, please continue.
0: Yeah, the Stanford Research Institute, I think they were, uh, you know, they did a lot of work and some of it was hushed up, some of it went underground. Then, you know, they they keep uh, pulling out these little uh, you know, throwing these little hints, which is just the tip of the iceberg, like the article in the New York Times about the yeah. UFOs. And so this is now a part of the mainstream. And I don't know where it's headed, to be honest with you. Well, what's your take on, on on the phenomena?
1: Well, it's wonderfully hybrid. Um, when we talk about alien abductions and these alien experiences, we have these clusters of phenomena that connect. So one, we have stuff we can see in the sky, and what all those New York Times articles and your article sums up is there is now pretty good evidence that those are unidentified, and some are declared by the military as being of extraterrestrial ori- origins. So people have observed things. We have records. Something's going on there. However, it could be military disinformation. It could be any type of counterintelligence. For me, I find those types of sort of data's interesting, but not related to the more interesting thing, which are these alien encounters. Um, In particular, the alien abduction, but not always even the abduction, but just the encounter of these extraterrestrials, ultra-terrestrials, and visitors, but as I said, they're wonderfully hybrid. So at the same time, we see these folks describing these encounters with extraterrestrials, they also, and Whitley Striber gets into this, describe witnessing spirits of the dead. So people see ghosts and people see aliens, visitors, extraterrestrials, ultraterrestrials together. And if you start digging around the weird edges of the world, you'll also find Bigfoots. So People will witness a Bigfoot and then they will also have an alien encounter or they will also see a ghost or maybe they'll get all three. Is this the work of people being absolutely nutty? Sure, I don't care. I mean, it's all religion to me, Um, since I have a pretty wide notion of religion being the culturally constructed transactions with culturally instructed entities that are usually invisible and superhuman. That's a very comfortable place for religion to be for me. So these are describing religious experiences, but I, I think we should give a little background on who is Whitley Stryber? And as you said, he is a beautiful writer, just especially those early books. He wrote the book Wolfen, which was made into a movie uh, about Native American shapeshifters uh, in New York City. It's a wonderful little m- movie and a great book. Wow. The Hunger is probably the best vampire book I have ever read. Wow. I know. Love the movie. You know, opens with Bauhaus dancing to "Bella Lugosi's Dead. And then it's (laughs) David Bowie and Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve. I mean, what? (laughs) It's just amazing. So, yeah, those books just, bam, came Uh, out. Big seller. Uh, And then in the 1980s, in fact, in 1985, December 26, 1985, Whitley Stryber was living in his upstate cabin in New York in the Hudson River Valley. That's important. And he's... Something happens. And then the next day, he feels very uncomfortable. He feels weird. He's not sure what went on. He keeps having these memories of seeing owls, but he looks and he can't find any owl prints in the snow. He starts writing a short story that he calls pain. And in that short story, there is a person who encounters an entity, not necessarily an alien, but some sort of superhuman, possibly demonic creature who pretty much says to him, you need to atone for all of your individuality and karma and pain and whatnot, and puts them in a box, and they have to feel excruciating pain, so coming out of it, they can be reborn and feel great joy. Well, over time, Stryber starts remembering more and more of the night, and what he reports happening is that, one, he remembers being rushed at by some sort of a creature and being like, what, what was that? And then he goes to sleep. And at some point in the middle of the night, he wakes and he can't move. And he has a sensation of a bunch of small creatures running all around him and some tall, some small. And he sees a friend of his who worked for the CIA that he knew from youth, but he finds out later that person had died like three months ago. So then stryber describes like rising up and seeing woods a bright light and he finds himself in a room that he describes as exceptionally dirty, which I find to be a really interesting detail. And that's the thing about Stryber. Nothing pans out, nothing is, I mean, despite his narrative becoming sort of cliche, it surprises you. So he's telepathically communicating with these two aliens in the room, these things that he resists calling them aliens, he just calls them visitors. And uh, they say to him, how can we get you to stop screaming? So they're agitated by him screaming, and he says, "Can I smell you?" And he smells them, and he smells like moldy cardboard or coffee grounds and yeasty whatnot. He says it's—he says it's an unworldly smell, but he describes it in such typical worldly ways. So then, of course, he uh, becomes one of the first persons to describe uh, being having an anal probe. Um, in which he also describes having uh, ejaculation. They also stick a needle in his head and cut his finger. And then after that, he passes out and he awakes again. And he can't really remember it, but he remembers seeing owls and he remembers a being. And for days, he's like working on this story and he's all screwy. And over time, it just sort of opens up and he proceeds to write this book, Communion. And it was a huge seller. just huge seller huge and it got made into a movie not a very good movie but i like it with christopher (laughs) walken in it and um, i love
0: arrival have you seen arrival yeah oh yeah i loved it loved it yeah what a different story you (laughs) know so striber's
1: career is just ruined by this he has to sell his cabin his books go out out of print blah 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 he's never a best-selling author again except He writes a book with another guy that got adapted into the movie The Day After Tomorrow, which came out relatively recently, and he made some money again. So that's Stryber's life, just in brief. It's the story of a man who would have been the next Stephen King, but he was abducted by aliens, and he told about it. He said everything. He didn't hold back in any way, and in some ways he sort of invented the pop culture myth of the alien abduction. But, even, but after that event, everything gets somewhat stranger and better and grander. Reading Stryber's works, and I've read about eight of them now. It just, it, it, it's just, it's amazing how intriguing this guy is, and I would call him a modern mystic without reservation.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so a couple of things. Um, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna talk about uh, cattle mutilations. Because that's made its way into the mainstream, you know, and also um, crop circles. But before that, um, um, when you said, you know, uh, Stryber is a modern day mystic, I mean, absolutely, that, that he is a mystic and in the purest sense of the term. Yeah. But, you know, when I think of him, often they're classified. Um, they're put in the same category as people like Carlos Castaneda, mm-hmm. the UCLA anthropologist, who famously went to Mexico and became a sh- uh, you know under the uh, became an apprentice to a shaman, and then he wrote a series of books, and then later, you know, there were people casting aspersions on yeah. the veracity of those accounts. Um, and i believe there's a, there's a there's an indian uh, counterpart there's a guy called swoboda who wrote about someone you know the yeah, left, robert swoboda yeah agori vimalanand apparently again inspired by the adventures of castaneda yeah, so 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 you know this is like a some people say this is a made up character who does not exist in the case of swoboda as well as castaneda and uh, the storytelling style is very similar, very compelling. I read both books when I was you know, 18.
1: <laughs> well, and the, another analog to that is Michael Harner. Michael Harner's book, The Way of the Shaman, in which he was an anthropologist, I believe at University of Michigan, right. did some ayahuasca and apprenticed with a Nahual uh, shaman. And then he came back, was a professor for a few years, and then ended up being a new age figure and teaching people the way of the shaman. Now. This asks the question, what is the role of Whitley Stryber as a more sort of religious teacher? Intriguingly, he's a big Eckhart guy, Meister Eckhart. He's also a practicing Catholic, but digging back further, he was in the Gurdjieff movement in the 1970s. So he's been doing a meditation practice straight out of the Gurdjieff system for 50 years, he writes about. And in his later work, writes about how he uses this meditation practice in order to interact with the visitors, who he says have been back in his life recently after his wife died, um, interacts with the dead. And we see that he does have some sort of teachings to the world um, as far as straight sort of spiritual practice. To another addendum that I, there's a lesser known book that he wrote right here, it's called The Path by Whitley Stryber, it's hard to get a hold of, it is his Tarot practice. He's, mm-hmm. he's been a, a tarot practitioner for 40, 50 years. He uses the Marseille deck as reconstituted by Kamuan and Alejandro Jodorowsky. Mm-hmm. And he has a system of interpreting the, um, the trump cards, sort of the major arcana, and using them to map out the universe and also using it for intuitive practices. He also describes in some of his other books how he would use the tarot cards to contact and interact with the visitors. Now, what does this mean overall? He's fabulously perverse in his practices. Um, And I mean that in like the uh, sort of um, methodologically perverse sort of way that we say as academics. But about the veracity of it, when you start reading about how he has these experiences in meditation, he talks about how he'll be doing his meditative practice that he does three times a day or something. That he'll he'll be knocked, he'll be pushed around, he'll feel someone kiss his lips and then a visitor will come or a spirit of the dead will come and then he also writes elsewhere in one of his, his writings about the use of tarot and he writes about going through the cards and them signaling an oncoming of the spirits that would, might cause a triggering of he would hear the nine knocks like in Freemasonry that would signal the spirits being there. I feel like he moves between explaining hypnotic experiences visionary experiences, dream experiences, um, and even you know these, these tarot experiences, and he describes them equally. Now, I would say a materialistically minded person would say, well, did it really happen or not? Did you really go up into the spaceship or not? Did you see them with your human eyes or with the black mirror in the back of your head? Where, where are these experiences? And I think for him, He just, he flips back and forth between them. What does this sound like? I don't know. Every magic practitioner I've ever met. So I think Stryber speaks with incredible authority and veracity to the human experience, to the visionary experience. But even when you're digging around in, and I'll just read this very quick passage here, in Stryber and the introduction to communion, he writes, um, the enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark and a little progress toward real understanding is made. He doesn't really differentiate between the visitors being the dead or being actual, spirit, actual visitors from another planet, though he often says, I don't think they're that. He vacillates between their sources in a way that really rings true to me. For instance, in my own few mystical experiences that I've had, my question is always, were my eyes open or not? Did I see that angel? Did I see the Divine Mother? Or is it just what's going on in my head? And for me, that doesn't really matter. So I don't mean to say that Lip Whitley Stryber did not get abducted by aliens. There were physical ramifications to his experience that were documented by doctors. He had he had tests. He doesn't have a brain tumor. Um, as to the reality of him being sucked up into a spaceship, I don't know. I also don't care. But I think a lot of people do. <laughs> and that's what ruined his career.
0: I know. It's sad, but uh, that's the way it is. Uh, hopefully, things are changing. I mean, look, man, this stuff is now... Uh, As mainstream as it gets you know so who who's dismissing it you know if you're dismissing it just shows your ignorance yeah you know and and just the fact that you're stuck in your little corner and you're not I mean it's all over CNN uh, you you read my article uh, uh, so there are now governments of dozens of countries all over the world who have dedicated departments you know what I mean Well,
1: don't discount the power of the Western mind to be materialistic and miss out on lots of stuff uh, and to be myopic about it. One thing I thought that was interesting is at the time of John Mack's death when he was doing all the research on Indian, or not on Indian, but on um, alien encounters, in which he argues there's a difference between a spiritually evolved person like the Dalai Lama versus um, an average person whose life is completely destroyed by having an alien experience. The Dalai Lama, when he asked about Um, when John Mack asked him about an alien religious experience, uh, Dalwan was like, of course, of course that's gonna happen. There are are other beings out there, they're conscious, you can contact them. So his point being, someone who has that regular experience of interacting with other beings that are non-physical is not gonna be weirded out by this. But right at the end of his life, he had appointed an Indian gentleman, I can't remember his name right now, to, and I don't know, maybe you know more about this, who had, uh, he had like 80 alien encounter, encounters that he had set up and was gonna go and do all the interviews for him. And I don't know whatever happened with that research, but I've definitely been in India before. I've been like, okay, if this alien thing is real, why aren't more Indians telling us about it? Which I have other arguments about.
0: (laughs) Because it's like, it's perceived as a religious experience, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, but there are, there are on the, on the uh, the Indo-Tibetan border, you know, oh, yeah. and you know the, the, the lights overlay and so there's, there's mm. lots of stuff but India I mean South Asia man they're uh, they're not ready to really discuss these things seriously yeah. they're still very much in you know just stuck in uh, political yeah. ideologies and very very uh, I mean, things that have passed on yeah. you know things that we don't even talk about or consider anywhere else. Well,
1: you know, it's like, I, in my dissertation, I, I did a critical edition of a text called the Dhamra Tantra, the text of the noisy ghost hooligan. And it's a text about conjuring. It's sometimes called yakshini sadhana or yogini sadhana or bhutani sadhana. And in these, um, in this scripture you see just list after list of if you wish to contact this entity and I'll give a yakshini or a yogini name you go out to the forest or you go to a lonely tree or you go to a river bank and you give her the specific offering she wants and you do her mantra x many times and then boom you hear you hear a whooshing of the wind or the tinkling of ankle bells behind you and you turn and there she is and if you approach her as a sister, she gives you plenty of tasty food. And as a mother, she gives you um, a divine consort. Um, or, or as a, a wife, she gives you a divine consort. And as a, as a mother, she gives you alchemical perfections. Or you ride upon her back up to the top of Mount Meru. Well, that's similar sounding. And I, I dug a passage out of um, Jeffrey Kripal's book, Supernatural, okay. uh, about the role of uh, these yogini practices in Tantra. And he summarized something by David White there, my advisor. Uh, and guess, yes. I've always thought that this was really connected. And I pulled out this passage. Uh, perhaps I just read it to you for a second. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: All right. So um, this book here, let's talk very briefly, is by Jeffrey Kripal and Whitley Stryber. Jeffrey Kripal is a scholar at Rice. He's one of the most creative thinkers I can think of in religious studies Absolutely. today. I would also argue that, and this is because I'm teaching a world religions course, Jeffrey Kripal has done something that no one has been able to do. And that is create a language of religious studies that works on its own without just resorting to anthropology or sociology or even literature. And in that he gets ideas that are more than just the sacred. So he'll talk about these encounters and transactions. And I know you've read quite a bit of his work too. So he finds Stryber so interesting, in fact, that he decided to write a book where Jeff Kripal would write a chapter about the history of religions and religious studies, and then Stryber would think about it and write about the ufological literature. So we get to these wonderful passages that I have here for you. Just one second. Should have marked this. Uh, Yes. So uh, here we have, let me make sure here. We have Jeffrey Kripal writing, first, step back from the television, way back. The visitors, of course, are not anomalous at all. They possess countless precedents in the the general history of religions. And that is an understatement. I do not think it is too much of a simplification to suggest that the entire history of religions can be summed up this way. Strange super beings from the sky come down to interact with human beings provide them with cultural, technological, legal, and ethical knowledge, guide them, scare the crap out of them, demand their submission and obedience, have sex with them, often forcibly, and generally terrorize, awe, baffle, inspire, and use them. The history of religions is the broadest context and grammar of communion, Kreipel's book. Nothing anomalous or meaningless there, even if it is at all, of course, impossible in our modern materialist register and assumptions themselves all very recent and no doubt very temporary. So the language that Kripel uses um, really does set out the fact that we are dealing with religious themes that are darn near etern- that are darn near eternal and at the root of so much that goes on in religious experience. And you know, as I read about Paul in Damascus and his experience with the great lights or Ezekiel and the wheels within wheels, you can't help but go, man, that sort of sounds like things these alien people are saying. But anyway, one last thing, and we can move on. Uh, This is a little bit longer passage, but it sums up what I wanted to get at with this notion of these yoginis, yakshinis, these supernatural culturally constructed beings that run throughout the history of India. Um, This is Kripal writing again. A few historians of Tantra have commented on these resonances. My colleague, David Gordon White, in my own, the most eloquent, or in my own mind, the most eloquent and learned interpreter of the Indian Tantric traditions writing today, has explicitly invoked what he carefully calls UFO-like language to make sense of ancient South Asian Tantric culture in his book, Kiss of the Yogini. Much of this book is actually a robust critique of new age forms of Western Tantra as inaccurate, romantic weekend representations of the older, much more sophisticated and much more complicated Indian traditions of Tantric yoga, which had little to do with today's postural yoga practices. And one particularly provocative section though, David turns to one New Age phenomenon that comes very close to the Tantric sex reported, described, and sought out in the Indian Tantric traditions, the UFO phenomenon. In this, he's also responding to Stryper describing a later experience where he is awakened and he finds this reptilian female creature in his room, not reptilian, but insect-like, and she comes to him and she actually places her alien vulva upon his mouth and he has oral copulation with her. And he remarks that he'd never really done this with his wife, but they've been doing it a lot since. So we have we have Stryber describing this sort of oral union with a feminine, insect-like, non-human creature, which sounds exactly like the encounters that David White describes and that I see throughout the text I, I read of animal-headed yoginis who people have visionary and possibly quite physical congress with. Um, so here we go. In sections with titles like early South Asian aviators and men flying spacecraft, this is from the book uh, Kiss of the Yogini, David writes of flying temples, of Vimana, royal airships and the landing fields and yes. launching pads of open air circular temples yes. where contact with the fierce female beings from the sky, i.e. the Yoginis, were believed to take place. More or less exactly like the female visitor of Whitley's account, these yoginis were described as descending from the sky to abduct, terrify, sexualize, and spiritually awaken the aspirant. White also writes of the ritual consumption of sexual fluids and the sublimation of sexual pleasure as the yogic means that were used to fuel all of these fly, all of this flying. The yoni, or sacred vagina of the goddess, The second mouth to be kissed, as it were, has been widely worshipped in India along with the lingam or divine phallus for millennia for many reasons, but one of them particularly evident in the more secret practices of the tantric traditions is especially relevant here. Sexual fluids were considered to be the spiritually potent power substances. Whitley's otherwise bizarre story of finding himself forced into kissing and I assume consuming the fluids of the glowing vagina of the feminine alien presence Makes remarkably good sense in this context. The scene reads like something straight out of a medieval tantric ritual. Kiss of the Yogini, indeed. So I think that kind of sums it up, sums up yeah, a lot right sums there. Sums up
0: a lot. Sums up a lot. But why are people like White, David Gordon White, why is he so insistent on, you know, disavowing the mystical aspects mm-hmm. of, of, of religious study? Like many scholars, yeah, you know, I mean, it seems like the, what do you call it—the the hermeneutics of suspicion, yeah, yeah. Well it's so the ingrained. Of suspicion
1: so, yeah. are important. And yeah. um, White consistently says that our job in religious studies is to make the relig- make religions intelligible, and that's really his thing. Now, I I know David White pretty well. He was my Ph.D. advisor, and. We've shared many a meal, and uh, he's a big fan of octopus, actually, but I feel like we always end up eating octopus when we go out. Okay. David says that he doesn't have psychic experiences, and he was told by a tantrika at one point uh, when he was young, he's like, this is just never going to happen for you, so just stop it. Um, He's been a practitioner of yoga on and off for years, but really, David likes to read Sanskrit and think about connections between things. He's not interested in any sort of, application of Tantra except by, you know, Indian Tantrics. He'll often say, I'm more Catholic than the post, Pope. So he's not interested in Neo-Tantra because it's not about Indians. It's not about tantrikas, It's about this sort of consumed and recreated Neo-Tantra thing that doesn't have anything to do with what he wants to study. And if David White is anything, it's, it's, it's he's very precise in what he wants to study and what he doesn't. And what he doesn't want to study is white people stuff. Okay. So but, but it's, yeah, it's ironic very
0: much a materialist. Right, right. It's ironic because his his approach is very white people stuff. Yeah. You know, it's not emic. It's not someone who's who experiences it or who talks about it from the inside. Yeah. It's somebody who's looking at it from the outside. To you which know, he then, would be
1: the first to say, yeah. I'm not Indian. I wasn't right. I don't have a nakshatra. I don't have a gotra. I I'm not emic.
0: Yeah, but we just talked about how these experiences yeah. are not these are universal. Yeah. These are not Indian experiences per se. I mean, there's a, there's a reams volumes of yeah. literature on psychic phenomena all yeah. over the world.
1: Yeah.
0: You know. So it's how do yeah. you how do you call it Indian? I don't know. Anyway, that's another uh, that's another um, conversation. So um, have you have you um, um, have you come across cattle mutilations in mainstream journalism or in on, on- It's
1: something I haven't really looked into. I'm familiar with the stories about it. And I, of course, was first made aware of cattle mutilations because I am ethnically a Calvinist. I am ethnically a Christian. I was raised in a very fundamentalist Protestant family. And I was raised in the 1980s during the time of the Great Satanic Panic. So the cattle mutilations were presented to me as being the work of occultists. Because we were afraid of occultists and witches running around everywhere. They're not. They never were. Um, so then, that becomes another one of these interesting hybrids to me. How this discourse that is so much about you know um, seared flesh that could only be done with a, of a laser knife and couldn't yeah. be done by a human gets doubled up to be oh it must be the work of the devil. But I do have an anecdote for you on cattle mutilations. Okay. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a medium, and she was. She mentioned one day, said, we haven't even talked about aliens. I've known her for about 10 years. And I'm like, you're into aliens? And she's like, oh, yeah. And this is a woman who has very vibrant images that she can get of the dead. And one time I was standing with her outside. Uh, I was smoking a cigarette. I turned to my left and I saw, like, standing right there, two people. And I jumped. And I turned to her and she said, you saw them, didn't you? And I'm like, What? And she's like, who'd you see? And I described them. She's like, yeah, they used to own an orchard right over there. They passed on about 40 years ago. I interact with them often. So she was telling me this. And so, again, I don't have psychic experiences. But somehow being near a psychic person, there's some bleed over that can happen. She was saying that, in fact, that there were an earlier group of aliens that came to um, to our world. And they were interested in kind of just raising a ruckus. Like, And these were like the gray aliens, she said. They would cut up animals. They would abduct people. They were just kind of awful. Stryber, at one point in his career, said, maybe the the creatures that are coming here, if they are from another world, are just thugs that are here to torment us. So anyway, she says, so I saw these other aliens. I'm like, okay. And she's like, and I got a picture. I'm like, what? (laughs) A picture of what could be an alien head through a window, it would have had to be like eight feet, nine feet tall. And then she explained that there were two groups. There were the thuggish grays that are no longer coming, but there's another group that are these taller ones that are much more benevolent and are here to aid us. To add one little other twist to that, Stryber has an argument that these alien abductions are actually about evolution. It is about stressing individuals to force them to evolve in consciousness. And he's got this argument that all of the visitors are an experience of of people from the future or the dead or maybe visitors from another world, but they're trying to stress us, to drive us nuts, to challenge us to not think so materialistically and to get out of the fact that we're destroying our world and doing pain to one another all the time. So that's, again, Stryber has that religious vision of, almost a prophetic vision of, this horrible thing happened to me, mend your ways. Um So as to cattle mutilations and crop circles, I'm pretty convinced the crop circles were a hoax, Um but on, on the other hand, some people say that some of the them content of them, yeah. some of them were hoax, but other people say the content of them is too complicated to have been done in the way that people describe the hoax happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are some kind of keys. You can you, you can see it's very clearly. It's like a key, you know, almost like that thing that you pop into a socket and it opens. Yeah. You know, it's like one of those movies.
1: Yeah, I was just um, thinking, I've seen that movie.
0: <laughs> okay, so so yeah, here is this article uh, on on NPR. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that know, one drop look, yeah, and um. um five young purebred bulls mysteriously showed up dead on the ranch this past summer, drained of blood and with body parts precisely removed. Um, it's a well-written piece. It's like, um, and it's, it's all done with uh, surgical precision. Mm-hmm. Um, he says the animals are worth around $6,000 each um and so there's lots of these uh, th- there's lots of these stories he says uh, the sheriff's deputy dan jenkins has been working the cattle cases and has gotten dozens of calls uh, offering tips and suggestions a lot of people lean towards the aliens he says One caller had told us to look for basically a depression under the carcass, because he said that alien ships will kind of beam the cow up and do whatever they are going to do with it. Then they just drop them from a great height. Mm. And um, he says the cases are tough with little evidence. And um, He has a running list scrawled in green marker with top theories, what's clear It isn't bears, wolves, cougars, or poisonous plants, nor were the animals shot. And, um, and then there's never any tracks, Mm -hmm. you know, and he says here, it's impossible to do this kind of stuff without leaving tracks. And, um, and then there's a list of these incidents all over the country and, body parts removed uh, not one drop of blood anywhere. And. um,
1: So that's the same narrative
0: we heard in the Um, eighties.
1: So that's that's interesting. But again, I'm not that interested in truth. um, At least with a little t. But one thing I kept thinking of when you were saying this is maybe these aren't thuggish aliens that are just there to kind of raise hell. Maybe. Genetic. Aliens, pardon?
0: genetic material that's what that's what, well, what
1: if it's alien sacrificial culture uh-huh. what if they come and they pick up our cows uh-huh. i mean we have a long tradition of that in egypt greece india chop them up maybe they took the essence out after they cut them up the blood that we find to be so um impure maybe that's something that they find pure and instead of offering the bones and and fat to the gods that they would burn like the greeks did maybe they offer the blood maybe our aliens are performing sacrifices. Right. That's not what you're getting at, but I like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh... yeah, well, apparently from what I gather, uh, these people are running out of genetic material. That's what one no, hears on the grapevine, and that's why they've come here, because this is like the missing link, and they're creating a new species, a hybrid species and there's this intergalactic federation, and then it goes on and on, and there's a rabbit hole, you know?
1: Yeah, and Yeah. The, the degeneration of their DNA, so they need fresh DNA to re-enliven the, their DNA structure.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I don't know what to make of that. But yeah. it, once again, one of these big master narratives that function in using very kind of religious themes, so harvesting of, of souls. And the idea, I think it was Charles Fort that was writing about aliens. And he said, it's like, look, man, we're their cattle. We're being bred for slavery and some uncomfortable end.
0: Just like so, we do. Just like we do to other creatures and, and, you know, and other yeah, humans. You
1: have sure genetically engineered some cows.
0: OK, so um, hey. How much time has elapsed? I'm sorry, I haven't been far- uh,
1: I'm Look, We're looking at about 45 minutes, I think.
0: Okay, so it's about to, uh, this thing's about to end. Okay. Because I have a 40 minute limit. I, I did not sign up for the unlimited uh, version. I will soon, I just haven't done it yet. Um, so I think we've talked about a lot of what we wanted yeah. to. Um, where, and I'm going to insert uh, stuff sure. in post-production, you know, pictures, because all yeah. of this stuff is available
1: on... on, let, on me, the- let me quick run through that Lam thing very fast. Though.
0: Yeah, Crowley and Lam, yeah. yes. So Alistair
1: Crowley, Alistair Crowley in 1917 did a working in New York called the Amalantra Working, in which he was doing a series of... Um, Magical Practices, and he channeled a vision of this entity, and we'll get the picture up for you, uh, that he called Lum. And some people have argued that it was Iwas, which was his personal genius as well. Now, he publishes this picture in his scathing commentary on Blavatsky called The Voice in the Silence. On that, in the frontispiece, it says this is Lum, which is the Tibetan word for to go, which, or going, which it isn't. Lum is the Tibetan word for a path. So then he says that um, this thing is a lama, which means one who goeseth. I think he meant lama, spelled B-L-A-M-A, and he just got all that wrong. So years later, Kenneth Grant is a kind of an occultist who goes to Crowley and he's studying with Crowley. And Crowley says, you can have one of my paintings. And he picks this painting and he takes it. In time, Kenneth Grant posits that this is an alien and its image can be used in a practice he calls the egg, in which someone meditates on it, seals themselves up in that and can travel to other worlds via this image. And when you look at it, it looks so much like a gray alien. It is is undeniably looks like a gray alien. Now, depending on how you interpret it, it's either a gray alien who is wearing some clothing or it could be a stylized penis going into an orifice. It's Crowley. What are you going to do? Other people took this up, these Typhonian OTOs people. That's another order of Crowley's order. And I've argued that, in fact, in 1917, when Crowley channeled this image, he opened the doorway for the greys to come into this world. Then L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons in the 1940s were doing the Babylon workings, somewhat under Crowley's instruction in the desert. And from there, suddenly we start seeing gray aliens all the time. Thereby, these occultists are arguing that Aleister Crowley opened the doorway to the gray aliens and that we can use his practices to also contact the gray aliens. It gets exceptionally interesting and weird to look at this, but the idea that I wanna bring up is that modern occultists and esotericists use this same technology and narrative structure to have their own visionary experiences and there are rumors and drawings online of a cult of lum in the Mojave Desert where people are regularly using this practices in groups to make contact with the gray aliens and move across space using meditation on this image one further thing lum means just path like in lumdre the shakya school of uh of of tibetan yeah, Buddhism. Yeah, lam,
0: the bija the bija right
1: yeah. yeah well there's the bija lam but then there's the tibetan word lam which means a path a roadway and
0: yeah. then if
1: you look in the tibetan dictionary the chandradal lam chempo is the great super highway or a place to do magic
0: okay 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 got it okay let's,
1: the sanskrit let's, equivalent is marga yeah
0: yeah okay oh okay so it's marga excellent um Briefly, let's uh, wrap this up with the, uh, with the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. So uh, now this stuff has gone official. It's come out yep. as in there is, they are looking at this very seriously. They've allocated funds to it. And um, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of data and information that they're not able to explain. And they've acknowledged that. So why is this all coming out? You know, because we, we are trained, you know, we, we think, okay, this is, why is the mainstream reporting it now? Because this is always something that challenges the mainstream, right? So what's the agenda? You know, if you wanna, so there's that, that angle. And, and, and of course, then there are the materialists who just ignore it. Oh, okay, oh, no, no, it's just because it doesn't fit into the, the confines of, of their uh, worldview. So what's happening here? the pentagon and these uavs and um you know are we are we getting ready for a visitation is this gonna is the earth i mean is this like impending cataclysm global cataclysm and this is the time when all this stuff just kind of blows up and are we ready for it as a species you know because we have the biggest the the finest minds now talking about this stuff is stephen hawking and there's people yeah. at MIT and so on and so forth. So just a few minutes, if you can talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I remember
1: Ronald Reagan said that he hoped the aliens would come and it would be the one thing that could unite the whole world, Russia, and the United States together in a peaceful work against the aliens. He said this in a speech at some point. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of an impending crisis of an extraterrestrial nature that is very physical in the sense aliens come here, I think is a good story. Why is it coming out right now? I think it's the mountains of data. I think it's that some heroic journalists that you've described in your work have gotten this information. It's Podesta, it's Harry Reid. It's people saying, let's actually look at this. But at a larger argument, one could say that the alien encounter experience is something that's always been with us. But the idea of them definitely being aliens is probably something from Little Green Men from Another World is something much more recent. It's interesting to me that all of this um, UFO stuff starts coming out of the Pentagon right around the time that we haven't had a good TV show about alien abductions in a while. X-Files isn't on anymore. So maybe it's a sense that because people are not constantly stuck in the pop culture narrative, there's a space for this to come out and not be just cast aside as say, Stryber's stuff was and continues to be. I mean, I don't know. It would take a more astute and more plugged-in thinker than I to give a better explanation.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, um, the gods of Zoom are are, are uh, giving me a. <laughs> they seem to like this conversation, so they haven't cut it off yet. So let's. I want to talk about um, uh, this. Uh, what was it that we wanted to? Um, you know we were we were, we were talking about um, uh, the pyramid, the pyramid connection, the great pyramid yeah and the sphinx, the head of the sphinx, and um, all the the extraterrestrial lore mm. around the subject
1: yeah
0: of course you know uh, the, the mainstream consensus tries to debunk all that, but then there's a lot of scientists and archeologists who take it very seriously. Yeah. So uh, have you read up on this? What do you think?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, not extensive. And that it was think... built
0: way before the other, yeah. and it has no connection to that civilization. So what do you think?
1: Um, I, I don't really have anything to say. <laughs> I, don't re- I don't know. That's not in my wheelhouse.
0: Okay. All right. Um, yeah, Egyptology is a, is, a, is a big uh, is a big field and I keep coming across these articles from time to time. So well, you
1: know, as we look at the history of religions, there's been a long tradition of placing the exotic in Egypt. I mean, we have these early traditions of Hellenistic magic that are always saying that the root of Um, that the root of magical traditions are in Egypt. Then we have ideas like Freud's Moses and monotheism, that Moses was an Egyptian. You see that in the Renaissance period, everybody was going back to Egypt. When you look at Aleister Crowley, he was always talking about Egypt. One wonders if Crowley had spent more time than the couple of years he spent in India, if he wouldn't have been talking about Thoth and would be talking more about Shiva. So I think Egypt is is a wonderfully exotic place in our imagination. I think the argument that there is a extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial culture that pre-stages and is a source of all of that Egyptian wonder fits into a lot of narratives that we have about Egypt. But yeah, so that's the kind of a world thing, but yeah, I don't know what to make of it.
0: All right. So um, do you think we're all connected at fundamental level? Like the aliens, uh, like the message, that comes through in these alien contact stories, Um, you know, what the Hindus call Advaita, Mm -hmm. the central thesis of of Vedanta or Taoism or Mahayana Buddhism or many other, you know. uh, I'm not a perennialist
1: thinker. I think that Advaita, Vedanta, um, which was the first school of, of Indian philosophy I ever encountered and I, spent a lot of my time thinking about Maya and Raman and Atman and Jiva and how they're all related, Aham Brahmasmi. And then I look at the tantric notions of non-duality and I look at the Tibetan notions of non-duality. And recently I was teaching a Chinese religion course and I look at a lot of Taoism. And I do see that there is a common understanding of the self and the other being reduced to one fundamental entity experiencing itself that I find profoundly satisfying as a man. Right. As a scholar, you know, the Tibetans knew the Indian material, but they really came up with their own stuff. The Advaitins and the Tantrikas were always going back and forth, and Tantra was a much more vibrant school of non-dualism than Advaita was at the beginning, though you couldn't say that now. i um, Uh, Or, I mean, when you come right down to it, I don't know if all those ideas are connected. I think everybody could have come to that understanding on their own. But it is a profound argument that we are all in this together. And the notion of hatred and suffering gets difficult when you realize you're only ever encountering yourself in any way. That said... This same style of argument can either bring us closer together or can make us incredibly far apart, as I meet many people who have had the non-dual experience and kind of just become navel-dwelling jerks that don't care about the world in any any way or that see human suffering as, as not important because it's all just the play of consciousness. My intrigue with Tantra and my romance with Tantra has always been that it resists the Advaita Vedanta notion of Maya as illusion I can only see this world as the very body of the gods and me as a god himself interacting with it. To see it all as illusion means to cast aside and scoff at it. What does this have to do with aliens? Well, light. There is always this experience of light, whether it's people seeing plasmas moving through their home and town or seeing the bright light before the alien experience, which sure does sound a lot like the Tibetan Book of the Dead if you wanna work it that way. And there has been some connection between POA techniques People using consciousness transferences techniques in the Tibetan context that have been bleeding over with some of this lum practices and modern occultism. But the consistent argument within the Indic traditions and the Tibetan traditions from that is that it is a period, it is an experience of non dualism is light and consciousness. That's the experience. And I see a lot of this realizing one's essence as being light and consciousness within these alien abductions, within near-death experiences, within hypnagoga experiences, within dream paralysis. But I would say that the vast majority of people having this experience and they're not prepared, it's terrifying. It screws them up really bad. So maybe they even invent the alien experience or the demon crushing them. And my own psychedelic experiences as a teenager, I went from having a beautiful experience of extreme oneness, to going through all the realms of hell that I'd been raised to believe I was in. And I go back and I think, maybe it's because I saw that light. And then the idea that Aaron Ulrey was just a coming and going of the universe, that was just just this, uh, not an illusion, but just something that's there and will be gone, made me go back through all of that painful imagery. So I think there is something to be said here for the metaphor of light, the body of light moving outside of one's body. I wouldn't call it a pan universalistic universal human experience of liberation no, or not consciousness,
0: consciousness as primary that's yeah. what we're talking about here yeah yeah so which is now you know you know thomas nagel david chalmers so there's it's it's it's, it's a part of our, our mainstream academic discourse uh, the, the 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 notion of consciousness as primary mhm yeah and uh, it, it's not something that's relegated to, yeah. you know, esoteric Eastern religious traditions and so on. Um, anyway, thank you for your time. Uh, you know, we, we got some, a few extra minutes here. Um, uh, uh, you know, someone smiling on us today. Maybe it's Lam or the other guy, the spirit of Crowley. Um, I'm going to invite... The guy's you- everywhere. Yes, I'm gonna invite uh, um, Jeff Kripal on this show. And hopefully you know, we can do something really exciting when he's on. Yeah. Um, so I'll invite you on the same site. That
1: would be lovely. I met Jeff about 20 years ago. and We had a couple of conversations at the Society for Tantric Studies. He's a delightful man. And yeah. I am loving teaching his textbook.
0: Yeah, amazing guy, amazing guy. And this experience he talks about. He was like this pure Bengali tantric, you know? Yeah. I mean, and he just got shredded by these, uh, by, by, by fundamentalists and people who ironically have um, very little actual understanding or experience of these. Yeah, what's amazing to me is something they kept saying, you don't know
1: Bengali. And then he was like, all right, let's send this out to some Bengali scholars, like as a blind study. And they were all like, oh, this translation works pretty well.
0: <laughs> yeah all right it's just yeah man anyway but um yeah so okay anyway thank you for coming i really really appreciate it and it's been an amazing conversation i know we've talked about i mean a lot of stuff i'll try and make bullet points and then once it's ready i'll insert some images and uh, that sounds graphics great. And then look at, uh, look at the
1: pull the images on the on Lam. almost all of those. I think you can pull out of Ben Joff's article and all of those images are not proprietary. They can be found anywhere on, on the internet. So those are real easy. And before you go, I received in the mail the other day from an occultist buddy of mine who knows I love Bigfoot. He sent me a Bigfoot and one Two little gray aliens. Now, I know this is from an occultist, so it's imbued with, like, go- golem power. Yeah. So it sits over by my crystal ball, by my books, my aliens, and my Bigfoot. All I need is a ghost.
0: <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Take care. Yeah. It was lovely to interact with you some more.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Let's Thank do it again. You. Bye-bye. Yeah. You've been listening to the Big Turtle Podcast. You can listen to the rest of our episodes here and you can watch our full video archive on our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe. See you next time.